You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. This week, I am speaking yet again with the inimitable Eric McGracken from the McIsaac uh, Group of Companies. He is a personal injury lawyer. He was on the show a couple months ago and provided some great insight into changes at ICBC, and I thought it would be wonderful to bring him back to talk about some more changes that have come in the last couple weeks, as well as a recent court decision criticizing ICBC's litigation strategy and how he thinks things are going to unfold from here. So welcome back to Eric McGracken. Thank you again to Eric McGracken for coming back on the Driving Law Podcast. We're so excited to have you again, Eric. Yeah, thanks, Kyla. Appreciate you having me on. And of course, we kind of have to have you back because uh, there is, I think I'm borrowing the word uh, that you just used before I started recording, a train wreck of a situation happening with ICBC right now. Yeah, I think that's a fair soundbite. There's just change after change, both legally and more, uh, you know, administratively inside ICBC that are impacting the public in a fairly bad way. I wish, I wish this bad news would stop, but it's not stopping. And so, you know, I suppose so long as these new developments keep coming out or working their ways through the courts, we'll, we'll have something to talk about. Do you uh, do you want to summarize what the biggest changes have been since we last talked? Well, you know, you know, the biggest change still remains what we talked about before, which are these caps on damages for what ICBC calls minor injury, but what any member of the public would actually consider fairly serious injuries, things like brain injuries and psychiatric diagnoses, chronic pain, those sorts of things. But over and above that, um, just the other week, I, I think it was last week, with uh with with no notice to the public with no notice to the profession the government came out and changed the rules of court to limit uh the number of expert reports litigants can have not in general and not only for personal injury cases but only for car crash cases so if you're injured in a motor vehicle collision you for some reason are going to have different procedural rights in courts than other members of the public coming to court and so that was a fairly surprising rule change and what what concerns me is it came about without consultation through the normal channels so for your for your listeners who aren't familiar with it what uh what this rule change basically says is if you're litigating a car crash case a personal injury collision case, improving your damages in normal litigation in the BC Supreme Court, you're subject, you're limited to only three expert reports for damages. And if you're in the fast track, that's for cases below $100,000, you're limited to one. And the, the concerning thing about this was the rules committee, as far as I know, wasn't consulted. So there's, you know, there's nothing set in stone permanently when it comes to the rules of court, like any um, legislation or regulation from time to time, tweaks and changes are needed. But there's a convention for when uh, court rule changes are made. And there's a rules committee, which is comprised of judges, retired judges, people in the profession, and they make these suggestions and government typically listens to it. Here, that doesn't seem to have happened. It seems more like ICBC's made the suggestion and the government's gone ahead 
and uh, put it through. And what was concerning is not only was there no notice for this, but it was retroactive in its impact. So if you have a current claim that's being litigated and you retained a report or a handful of reports several months ago, and we're rightfully relying on um, your right to privilege, and we're waiting to disclose those reports in, um, you know, we'll call it a strategic fashion, those reports are caught by this uh, rule limit. And I think there's going to be a lot of people negatively impacted by this. In, you know, in one soundbite, Kyla, what this does is it basically rendered a whole bunch of reports that exist right now as useless, although the disbursements could still be recovered. So basically, this rule changes. ICBC now has to pay for a whole bunch of useless reports that are out there, and people have to reinvent the way they're prosecuting current claims. So that's that's one change that came up. And the second um, is ICBC's internally decided to come with what the media has dubbed a meat chart when they assess claims. So um, on active claims that aren't subject to these uh, caps that were brought in for crashes after April, the government uh, from the top down, from the attorney general to ICBC, basically told their adjusters to ignore the law, to not value claims based on the factors that courts use, but instead to factor claims on this artificial meat chart that really has no bearing to reality. And what that does is it's it's resulted in ICBC putting in offers that are very low and disconnected with the actual harm and damages people are entitled to when they're victims of car crashes. And that's just stalled out uh, pending claims. It's overburdened the courts. It's led to a host of adjournments right now, and it's caused quite a bit of disarray in the world of personal injury prosecution. So uh, there's, you know, there's a bit of a mouthful of the changes, but in a nutshell, that's what we're talking about. I want to ask you about this rules amendment because you you mentioned that it applies retroactively. And I know that like when we dealt with changes to rules about certain defenses and issues you could raise in criminal cases, one of the things that the courts um, ultimately determined was that you couldn't make it retroactive if it was going to affect a substantive right at a trial. Does this do, do you see or foresee any challenges along that same line of authority for these retroactive rule changes? Yeah, I'm not sure the arguments that'll be advanced, but I do foresee challenges. I think in fact other litigants are in in cases that are before the courts right now are bringing up um exactly those kinds of arguments and perhaps others, but I think the court's going to be asked to take a hard look about whether that's a valid rule change, at least insofar as it is retroactive. But I'd love, I'd love your comments on this rule change. I'll just tell you quickly what my concerns are, and, and then I'd love to hear what you have to say. So, so we have a rule change that comes without consultation for the profession. It comes without consultation of the rules committee. It's basically done in secret because there's no notice to the public that this is coming, so people could change the way they're litigating claims in anticipation of the rule, mm-hmm. it's made retroactive. And, and for me, the biggest factor is it appears, at least, that it, it's a rule change that wasn't implemented to help fix a problem generally or help uh, you know, address procedural issues that are concerning to the court. Instead, it's a rule change that was uh, put into place to help one institutional litigant. That's it, ICBC. Because if this was a problem across the board, if this is, if plaintiffs in personal injury prosecutions are somehow bringing too many expert witnesses to court, why would you bring a rule change that only limits it in ICBC cases, but not cases across the board? 
And the other issue is, you know, I think I think any any attempt to spin this otherwise, um, you know, I'd be hard pressed to believe that because ICBC almost immediately came out and said, "This is great. With these rule changes, we're going to save hundreds." of millions of dollars. And when asked to break down how are they going to save all this money, they said, well, not only are there going to be fewer plaintiff uh, reports that we pay the disbursements for if the plaintiff is successful, but we're going to have fewer experts of our own. But here's the kicker. ICBC's projected that they're going to also save $200 million in reduced damage claims. So if this rule change uh, is going to result in plaintiffs receiving less damages. That tells me that the reports that are being now prohibited were serving a purpose. They were actually proving the plaintiff's case. And instead, the plaintiffs are handcuffed when it comes to um, you know, car crash personal injury prosecutions. And the projected result is that their damages are now going to be reduced. So to me, in a soundbite, that just seems like a rule that was brought in for an improper purpose. But I'd love your views on it, Kyla. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with you that it seems like, like on first blush, a rule that was brought in for an improper purpose. And I think that there'd be a really interesting argument to make about whether a rule change that completely derails, derails litigation that's already in progress, where like a court date has been set, um, and you have already retained experts, and you've already paid all this money um, to have them prepare their reports, and you've provided the reports to the other side and complied with all of their obligations, and they're on notice that the experts are coming. Coming, that to suddenly change the rules to benefit the party who is um, who is sort of having to deal with the expert evidence amounts to a procedural fairness violation. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, I think David Eby is in a difficult position by being both the AG and the person in charge of ICBC. He gets this power to create changes through regulation with no consultation to address problems in the court system. But if he's doing his, you know, attorney general powers in a way that benefits his institutional client, then it gives rise to an argument about a conflict that leads to this procedural fairness violation at trial. And I think the other thing that concerns me about it is that it loses sight of what the role of an expert is in court. Because as, as you know, an expert's not coming to court to try and get more money for one side or to prevent the other side from not having to pay any money on, on a, you know, on a claim or whatever the case may be. The expert comes to court to assist the judge in determining the issues that have to be decided. There's somebody who says, I have a large body of knowledge about this particular area that, you know, my lord or my lady doesn't have that same type of knowledge about something very technical or medical or scientific, for example, and I can educate the court so that the court can have the benefit of that information in arriving at a decision. The expert's there to assist the court. Yeah, I think that's a great point you raise, and and picking up from that as well, so not only do the rules contemplate that experts have a duty for the court? They have to swear that they're, uh, you know, fulfilling that duty when they're writing the report and when they're coming to testify. But the court has a gatekeeper function. A plaintiff can't simply come armed with a small army of experts and introduce all that evidence. Every single expert report has to be deemed necessary. Right, You can't just bring in opinion evidence because you want it. It actually has to be necessary before the court admits it. And so there's a gatekeeping function right at the outset that a trial judge could decline to admit evidence that's not necessary to help them, you know, be it a judge or be it a jury, 
um, make the proper findings that are needed. And the second thing is a tool exists to prevent um, unnecessary reports. Even if a court does let it in, if a plaintiff is piling on reports that are redundant, the court has great discretion in stripping a plaintiff of costs and disbursements for wasting days of time presenting unnecessary evidence or for racking up disbursements which are unneeded. And the one thing that always, uh, you know, just rubbed me the wrong way in, in the way this is all sold to the public, it talks about how ICBC has to pay for these reports. Well, they don't. Plaintiffs retain experts if ICBC isn't persuaded on the medical evidence that exists. If ICBC doesn't like your doctor's note or take your word on the fact that you're injured and plaintiffs are forced to litigate, only then do they have to retain expert reports that are admissible in court. And ICBC only becomes responsible for those disbursements if they're on the losing end of trial. But if plaintiffs are retaining experts to simply persuade ICBC in the first place, and that's why ICBC is now reimbursing all these disbursements, perhaps a better um, area of scrutiny is to look at ICBC's internal practices and are they assessing claims fairly, making it so plaintiffs don't have to go through the cost and expense and time of retaining experts or multiple experts to prove their case. It just makes no sense. You know, the thing is the Attorney General is out there talking about these dueling experts and how it's unnecessary. You only have a case of dueling experts when a plaintiff presents their own doctor and ICBC says, we choose not to believe that. We're going to hire our own expert who, surprise, surprise, is now disagreeing consistently with what people's treating physicians have to say. Now we've got a case of dueling experts. And if there's no compromise to be reached, plaintiffs have no choice but to prove every alleged injury that they have because ICBC is in the business of denying injury. If you look at any court pleadings, I'm not aware of a single case where ICBC is pleading that they accept that the plaintiff was injured in the collision. The standard statement of, of defense that's filed is to deny that any injury occurred at all or to admit that if there is an injury, it's from some other cause. Anything but the car crash caused the injury. That's the official position ICBC lawyers take when defending claims. And so plaintiffs have no choice but to actually prove their case. And so now we've got this rule, which is assuming experts are not going to fulfill their duties to the court, or that's assuming courts won't use their discretion in um, you know, somehow allowing unnecessary evidence to come in or they won't make proper cost awards after the fact. And you basically treat everybody as, as an offender here. You say, okay, if there is a problem litigant, let's just, let's just cap everybody's rights at the outset and not really have any solution there. So it just seems like it's a very extreme rule change, but more than anything, what's, what's not sitting right with me is it seems like it's a rule change made for the wrong purpose. Oh, absolutely. And then the, the notion that, you know, it's, it's okay because the, the judge can order additional experts if necessary. If you're trying to save court time and, and prevent this, you know, unnecessary, you know, quote unquote waste of court time or the, the use of court resources to prolong litigation, making a process whereby you have to bring an additional pretrial application. Um, to determine whether or not you can bring evidence to prove or not prove your case, um, that uses more court time than just dealing with it in the course of the trial in the ordinary manner. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, you know two points worth making here. One, when you cap how many expert reports somebody can have, I'm not in the business. I, I spend disbursements on behalf of my clients. I'm not in the business of spending money unnecessarily. I want to be able to recover the disbursements I incur, and I only want to retain experts where it's necessary to retain them. But when you come up with this cap, it's actually 
the most seriously injured litigants that are going to be impacted. So if somebody has a brain injury, a spinal cord injury, they suffer mental health issues because of years of living with chronic pain, there's a wage loss component to it. Perhaps they're totally disabled, perhaps they're partially disabled. These are complicated claims to present properly before a court so they could assess damages, not just your non-pecuniary loss, but what's your cost of future medical care going to be? What kind of lost income are you talking about? What kind of residual earning capacity do you have? And so this rule doesn't limit your medical evidence. This, this rule limits your expert evidence when it comes to proving damages. Serious injury cases require serious evidence to paint the picture of a plaintiff's future for the court. And these are the people that are going to be harmed by this rule. So, you know, like if you've got a two-year whiplash injury case or you've got a you know, maybe an orthopedic injury that fully recovers, you don't need a lot of experts to prove your damages. Oftentimes, in those cases, all of the damages are in the past. You don't need experts to project out into the future. But terribly harmed British Columbians are the ones who've now had their claims derailed in the court process, and they're now handcuffed in terms of how they have to present their case in court. So that, you know, that, that is concerning in terms of who's actually going to be harmed by this rule change. Um, and I had a second point I wanted to make, but I actually completely, um, completely lost track of whatever that, you know, whatever that thought was. Oh, actually, this is it, Kyla. So, so, so you, you rightly point out that you could have a pretrial application for more experts. I suspect if the profession was consulted, the rule would read, because everybody could agree that, look, if it's necessary to, as a default cap experts, that's fine, but have a way around it in appropriate circumstances, right? There's, there's going to be times when you need to exercise the exception. Here, the only exception to having more experts is one, if ICBC consents. Well, I'm not going to hold my breath that they're going to be consenting for plaintiffs to have more claims to prove their case if they want to save their $200 million. The second circumstance is the court has to appoint their own expert. Now, I'm not aware of many judges that want to take on the role of retaining an expert witness, instructing that expert witness what they need to uh, address, and you basically do the lawyer's job for them. To me, what would make sense is if the rule had an out where any litigant could apply to court for permission to retain a further expert, and then the court could decide whether that seems necessary or if it seems frivolous. That seems like a good use of the court's time, even though it's an extra burden for litigants to have these pretrial applications asking the court's permission. That's better than what we have, which is asking the court themselves to start getting involved in the expert retainer business. I, I, I just strongly suspect courts will not want to do that. They're not going to want to take on that extra burden, especially since ICBC's recent trial strategy is completely overwhelming the court's resources. Yeah. The um, other thing I wanted to ask you about was this new, um, I think I call it a dumb litigation strategy because it drives everything into court. Um which was the revocation of all previous offers, replacing them with lower offers, and the um, the take it or leave it approach that's being used by ICBC. Have you experienced that? Yeah, I've seen that in my practice, and uh, you know I think a lot in the profession have. So what ICBC has done, 
I call it a secret memo because they're not publishing it, but I have it from reliable sources that these instructions were were put out there. ICBC adjusters were told to withdraw all of their current offers and to reassess things, again, not not based on the law of non-procuring da- damages, but to reassess things based on this internal meat chart. And this meat chart dictates that offers be made that are far lower than claims are worth. And, of course, litigants, especially represented litigants, aren't going to accept these bad offers. So that's resulting in a lot more cases being forced to court. And it looks like the few meat chart cases that have gone to court, ICBC has been on the losing side of it with some pretty harsh commentary from the judiciary as well. So it looks like this strategy of theirs is backfiring. But through, through other colleagues, what I'm told is the week or two after this meat chart strategy kicked in, there was something like eight overbooked trials in one week in the BC Supreme Court registry in Vancouver that had to be adjourned. So the courts know that most personal injury cases settle. The the vast, vast majority do. So they double book, they triple book trials, knowing that a lot of them are going to settle before trial and that the court has enough resources to by and large hear the cases that need to get on. But what happened is ICBC pulled this new policy out overnight and again, without notice, withdrew a lot of offers, decided to stop negotiating in other cases. So plaintiffs said, okay, we're going to have our day in court. And the court was overwhelmingly overbooked, where something like seven or eight trials in one week had to be adjourned because the court couldn't accommodate it. And that's a fairly harsh result for an institutional litigant, especially an extension of a government litigant to take. You're, you're denying people's right to have their day in court by overwhelming the system with unreasonable settlement offers. So that's a pretty bad policy. And, uh, you know, I don't think, I don't think the public's taken too kindly to it. Hopefully the judiciary doesn't take kindly to it. Um, I know, I know at least one case came out where there's published reasons with the court being critical of ICBC's quote, institutional tactics. So this is, yeah, this is one of these other unfortunate developments. Now, you mentioned that case that came out. I, I believe you're talking about the one that was reported by um, uh, Ian Mulgrew uh, recently. Um, one of the criticisms that ICBC had about that case was that the litigants didn't raise the issue of their institutional tactics and um, what they've been doing in the courts. Do you think it's an appropriate thing for the court when they've taken this position, when it's been so well publicized and when it's overburdened the court such that, I mean, I'm pretty sure every judge in the building knew that, you know, eight trials had to be bumped that day. Right. Um, Is it appropriate for the court to take notice of that and point the finger of blame at a party? Yeah, that's, you know, that's a bit of a tricky conversation. There's always concern when a court is using out-of-court factors in, in reaching their conclusions. And I'm not sure what was raised or wasn't raised at that trial. I can't pretend that I was either there personally or that I've read the full transcript from it. But but I think you're right that there's some, on the judicial side of things, some institutional knowledge of what's going on by virtue of the fact that all of a sudden motor vehicle collision cases aren't settling. And these are lengthy cases, right? Your average motor vehicle collision case is set down for three, four, or five days, sometimes weeks in the case of complex injuries. And so they, if these cases all have to run, they have a capability of greatly overwhelming judicial resources. And of course, the judiciary is aware of that. So I don't think ICBC could implement a policy like this 
and hope the courts remain ignorant to it. Yeah, I mean, from my own experience, I did an appeal once where a, um, it was a traffic court decision, but the, the traffic court justice had relied on some institutional knowledge based on information that was published on the court list yeah. um, in in forming the conclusion that led to the verdict in the case. And I said that that was wrong. The um, BC Supreme Court found that that was absolutely fine, that there was nothing yeah. wrong with it. So I, from my perspective, and my, you know, my knowledge from having to some extent litigated the issue, you. I don't think there's anything wrong with the court saying, look, we know what's happening in our building. And we also know why it's happening in our building. I mean, it's not like people at the registry are standing there going, yeah, well, you know, it's all this guy's fault. Um, and uh, ICBC's, you know, saying, oh, no, it's their fault. We all, we, they know what's happening. There's discussions that go on in the building and the court becomes aware of that. And I think that it's appropriate to rely on institutional knowledge, particularly where it's also so widely reported that it, you know, could arguably as well form the basis of just judicial notice. Yeah, no, you know, you're absolutely right. There's a distinction between what the court knows from what's going on within their four walls versus some judge saying, hey, I just Googled McGracken's blog and he's saying some nasty things, so I'm going to incorporate that into my reasons for judgment. That's not what's going on. I think if the court is, you know, using their institutional knowledge, then they're probably well within their rights to be very critical of an institutional litigant's strategies in court. When it comes to discretionary factors like assessing costs, the cost rule is very wide and can let a court use, uh, you know, whatever factors they feel are necessary in weighing it in on top of some certain statutory factors they need to look at. And, and you know, Madam Justice Sharma basically said, look, I'd even award more costs for the plaintiff if I had the right to do so because it was a case that and quote, did not need to occupy the court's time at the expense of the taxpayer. So, you know, the, you know, there is some judicial backlash already, and perhaps there'll be more. What I'm really hoping for, though, is ICBC will read the writing on the wall, realize that this was perhaps an ill-conceived strategy of theirs, that it's blowing up already, and that they ratchet things back and choose to treat existing litigants fairly. You know, one can only hope that that's what they end up doing. But if not, I think we're going to have a lot more sets of reasons like Madam Justice Sharma's where ICBC gets punished for running trials where they have no chance of beating the plaintiff's formal offer. And that's what double costs are all about. It's to, it's to punish an unreasonable litigant for taking an unreasonable position at trial and wasting everybody's time and money. Right. Just the same way that if you use too many experts, you would be punished for doing that. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, you got it. You could have your day in court, but you could also be punished for unreasonably having your day in court. And and so I, all those tools are there. This you know, To me, again, you know, coming back to the court rule change, it just truly seems like an unneeded rule change. And I, I can't get off my impression that it was brought in for a completely improper purpose, not for the public in general, not for the functioning of the institution in general, but simply to save an insurance company money. I, I, I can't think of any other time I've seen a rule change brought in to help one litigant out. Now, you mentioned your blog, the BC Injury Law blog. Um, you've basically for years and years been doing summaries of, I would imagine every personal injury case that's released by the courts. It seems that way when I read it. Um, every published decision. Um, when you've been doing those summaries, because you have this extensive knowledge and background in, in the case summaries, how often is it really that there are these costs awards against people for wasting court time and having too many experts and, you know, the like? 
Yeah, well, there, you know, there's quite a few cases where ICBC is ordered to pay double costs where a, you know, where a plaintiff firmly beats their offer. So, so just using this recent case, Tsai and Murdoch, I think the plaintiff offered something like $65,000. Uh, ICBC refused to pay, and they were awarded something like $85,000 in court. And their offer, ICBC's offer, was well below either of those. And, and the court basically said, look, that's a waste of time. The plaintiff was willing to take something reasonable. You wouldn't pay it. And instead, they had to run a trial, bring expert evidence to court, uh, be subjected to the stress of cross-examination, and they were entirely reasonable in what they were requesting. So you have to pay not just their costs for the trial, but now double costs. And so that happens quite frequently. And, and, and I'll get off ICBC. You know, my ICBC rant for a moment has nothing to do with ICBC. Any litigant um, where, where there's a reasonable former formal offer in place, they, if they're on the losing side of that trial, they face the risk of paying costs or even double costs. And that happens quite frequently um, in, in personal injury prosecution. And plaintiffs aren't immune from that as well. If a plaintiff has a $10,000 claim and they come in, they're wanting hundreds of thousands of dollars and the court wants nothing to do with it, they're going to be hammered with costs consequences, being deprived of all of their expert witness costs, maybe paying the other side's costs. And so when you see a low plaintiff award, you usually have a negative award. Usually it's a plaintiff that ends up having to pay ICBC money. So, you know, the costs tool is a very powerful tool that the court has to keep litigants in check um, in BC Supreme Court. And it is used quite liberally. You know, the courts do hammer the unreasonable litigants quite frequently. I couldn't give you numbers. I couldn't tell you how often, but there's no shortage of cases out there dealing with costs, consequences after trial. So it sounds then like the court is well-equipped and already uh, perfectly um, comfortable policing this type of behavior, whether it's on the part of the plaintiff or the part of ICBC, when it gets out of hand. Yeah, I can't speak for them, but I would suspect if the judiciary was consulted or if, if the rules committee was consulted, they would say this really isn't a problem. Uh, this isn't anything that needs a fix. You know, apparently when these rule changes are made, the attorney general needs to consult with the chief justice of the Supreme Court and this this rule change says that a consultation could take place. I'd love to see the transcript from that conversation because <laughs> we all know the duty to consult is very different than the duty to meaningfully um, you know, reach consensus on important issues. So I wonder, <laughs> I wonder if the government said, this is what we're doing, heads up, there, you've been consulted. Well, um, some, some cases out of the uh, Aboriginal law context would suggest that if that's the way that you're going about your consultations, you're not actually fulfilling your duty to consult. So I, I wonder if it's, is it possible to obtain a transcript of, of those consultations? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know, but I suspect whoever is first to challenge this rule change in court uh, would be well served if they try to get their hands on the transcript of that consultation, if it does exist or if that is the type of thing that could could be requested from Freedom of Information Act or other you know other avenues. But yeah, I'd love to see exactly what was said uh, between the two to see if there was a meaningful, a good faith consultation about this rule change. Now, is there any, you mentioned at the beginning that this is, you know, when there's a rule change, it's kind of convention to engage in these consultations. Is there an argument that the breach of constitutional convention, is it a constitutional convention, I guess is my first question. And then secondly, is there an argument that the breach of constitutional convention invalidates the rule change? 
Yeah. Well, I know, I know the convention is there, right? The Rules Committee serves a purpose. It's to canvas the profession, the stakeholders, litigants, lawyers, the judiciary, saying, hey, we're going to tweak the rules like this. Like, you know, our BC Supreme Court rules were overhauled around 2010. From top mm-hmm. to bottom, they were overhauled. And there was a lot of consultation with the public, a lot of notice to the public. People knew exactly what these rule changes were going to say, exactly when they were going to kick in. And that's the way these things are supposed to go. And over time, there's been some tweaks to the rules, and they all follow the same protocol. There's a rules committee that says this is the changes we'd like to see. The government follows the rule committee's advice, and there's plenty of notice to the public. That wasn't followed. Whether that in and of itself somehow invalidates this rule, I don't know. I have to confess I'm well out of my area of expertise in talking about how court rule um, changes need to come about and what what um, you know constitutes an improper rule change. All I know is my instinct on this, that everything seems to be that this is a rule change that wasn't designed for the benefit of the public, but it was designed for the benefit of a single institutional litigant. And, and to me, that just doesn't sit right. Now, what do you think about the sort of finger of blame that has been continually pointed at lawyers for what's going on with ICBC? Because the the constant line that we seem to be getting from government is, you know, this is because plaintiff's counsel is, is you know, not settling or they're, they're bringing too many experts or they're uh, really greedy lawyers who want a bigger cut on their 30% or whatever, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, what do you think about that, and how do you reconcile it with, if any, gatekeeping function that lawyers play in advancing their clients' cases? Yeah, you know, for me, it's been a big political game. The The government, and I can't understand why, I, I, I simply suspect it's because they lean towards no fault. Institutionally, the NDP tried to pull off no fault before, and I think philosophically it's deeply rooted within the party, so having no fault is something the NDP leans towards. But for for whatever reason, they've brought in these changes, and you can't sell it to the public by saying, hey, we're going to strip your rights. Uh, if you have a brain injury, we want to limit your rights. If you have post-traumatic stress disorder, we want to limit your rights. Uh, if you have a psychiatric injury, we want to take away your right to go to court. You can't say that. Instead, what they said is there's a crisis, and that crisis needs to be fixed. So their words were dumpster fire, so there's a nice visual of your crisis. So here's this crisis. It needs to be fixed. And, oh, it's not your fault, Mr. and Mrs. Public. It's all those darn lawyers, right? It's easy to demonize the lawyers. Uh, as the face of a problem, and that's the tact they took because there's not a lot of love for lawyers as a, nope. <laughs> as a profession, and personal injury lawyers particularly. They probably rank at you know the lowest of the low-hanging fruit in terms of who the government decided to target here, and there wasn't a lot of criticism that or, 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 or thought or debate that went into this. You know, you know, the government's narrative was basically there's a problem. It's going to cost you guys a lot of money. Um, British Columbians, if we don't fix it, it's all the darn lawyer's fault, and we're just making some changes. That's it. We're only impacting minor injuries. And and if that's the information you have to go off of, it sounds pretty reasonable, but the devil's in the details. And one reason why I think the government's been able to sell this so far is because nobody's actually been impacted by it yet, right? Lawyers who 
prosecute these claims for a living, know exactly how this is going to impact the public in the future. But if you're Joe or Jane taxpayer out there, or, or, or ICBC ratepayer, and you hear about these changes, it sounds reasonable. Say, oh, minor injuries are going to be capped. That sounds okay. We're going to clear these frivolous cases out of court. Oh, that sounds okay. But the rude awakening is going to happen. This is where we're going to see some real stories, some real world stories about how these legal changes have harshly um, impacted the rights of British Columbians. After April, people are going to be, you're going to have somebody hit by a drunk driver. You're going to have a child hit in the crosswalk. You're going to have a cyclist struck. You're going to have a texting driver blowing a red light and smashing into another vehicle. And the victims of these collisions are going to have brain injuries. They're going to have psychiatric injuries. They're going to have chronic pain. They're going to have disability. And these people are going to be told by ICBC that they have minor injuries and that their rights are capped. And people's jaws are going to drop. You're going to have serious injuries being called minor. And then the full force of the law is going to become very apparent because it's going to actually impact people. And I think that's when there's going to be some real backlash. And, you know, it's unfortunate that there wasn't, um, you know, a very clear public understanding of all of this beforehand. But I think once people are impacted, and every single day British Columbians are going to be impacted by this, people are going to understand just exactly how harsh this landscape is and how unfair it is to a lot of innocent people. Well, I'm really glad you could take time out of your busy day to share that with us. It's not exactly promising, but what is promising to me is that there are good people like you and so many other people in the personal injury bar who are trying to make this fair for the little girl who gets hit in the crosswalk or the person who is severely injured by the impaired driver or, you know, all of the victims of of bad drivers out there and of, of good drivers who make mistakes. Um, so thank you uh, for doing the work that you do and uh, sticking up in the face of um, some very significant bullying tactics by uh, the institution of ICBC. Well, Kyla, thanks so much. I do appreciate you having me on, and I appreciate you um, giving me access to this platform to share my views with, with your listeners. So thank you very much. All right, thank you. Well, I do love to end driving law on a bleak note, um, but this is not entirely bleak um, because there are, as I said, very good people like Eric McRacken um, out there fighting for the rights of injured individuals in British Columbia. And it's going to be very interesting to watch how the litigation unfolds, how the judiciary reacts to these rule changes and what is coming next from the government, because the way things are unrolling, we know something else is coming. What is coming next? when it comes to ICBC injury claims. So tune in next week to another exciting episode of Driving Law. And if you need to reach me, you can find me at vancouvercriminallaw.com or call 604-685-8889. And if you need to find Eric McGracken, he works for the McIsaac uh, Group of Companies. And you can call him at 250-381-5353.